Hello, Really True Fiction listeners. This is going to be the last episode of The Liberal Soul that I post on the RTF feed, and I know that I've been given a little heads up of that for the last few episodes, but I just wanted to do a last little personal one considering that today's episode, episode 20 of The Liberal Soul, is about Prometheus, which is kind of a story, which is a nice tie-in to this podcast, in that If you are a really true fiction listener who's been enjoying The Liberal Soul, I'm really grateful for you being interested in this other endeavor of mine. I'm quite hopeful that David and I can get back to recording episodes for Really True Fiction in the not-too-distant future. And if you are interested in continuing to listen to The Liberal Soul, that you find the show on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe there so that you can keep getting new episodes which I plan on continuing to make. Perhaps you are someone who's listened to Really True Fiction from the very beginning, and if that's the case, I am so grateful to have had your time and attention in any facet to be someone who pays attention to anything that I think out loud on. And so I just wanted to reiterate my gratitude to you in that realm. And just a reminder, this is going to be the last episode on the Really True Fiction feed So if you want to continue getting episodes of The Liberal Soul, please subscribe to that show. Thank you so much, and may the force be with you. The Liberal Soul is a podcast where I talk to people about their passions and their interests. I'll relay some of my own, as well as discuss works and thinkers important to the history of liberal philosophy. The Liberal Soul is meant to represent the people who are curious about the world and live to see themselves and others flourish within it. Please be aware that this podcast has some crude language and sometimes some bad words. But so it goes. Hello, you found the liberal soul. My name is Luke Mason. Welcome to episode 20, 20 episodes in so far. And for this one, I wanted to do something maybe a little bit more personal than I usually do. Although I think every episode I try to do on this podcast is a little bit personal. But I was thinking the last couple days, what um, kind of episode would be meaningful to me? I guess I just wanted to talk about something that is a little bit more to the core of what has even made me desirous to and capable of doing a podcast like this. Why am I even interested in exploring the liberal soul? And I think that it comes back to a little bit of my love of learning and my love of self-possession and being able to follow my own kind of intellectual bliss to reflecting on major and interesting elements of the human condition, which I think is a crucial, if not paramount element of what I call the liberal soul. And so today I am going to explore a little bit my favorite story, I guess, other than (laughs) Star Wars, although that's a favorite in a different way, but a favorite story of the Greek myth Prometheus. 
and Prometheus, the character being kind of my North Star in terms of thinking about how I want to have presence in the world. The main reason for this is that tomorrow, if you're listening to this on uh, day of release, but if not, August 30th is my mother's birthday, and she would be 64 this year if she were still alive, but she passed away January 30th, 2015, which actually happens to be my birthday, and at her memorial, I talked about Prometheus in my eulogy, and I've thought about Prometheus a lot, and I kind of want to discuss it a little bit today as one of the foundational components of the exploratory and open-minded in its most rigorous sense person. My plan is I will just remind everyone listening the story of Prometheus as well as relay some of what I think the real-life instantiations of that have been for me and why it's been important. But before I get into it, I just want to say thank you to anyone who listens and has been with me. And if you've listened to all 20 episodes so far, you're a hero, and I really appreciate it. I guess maybe I shouldn't use the word hero given what I'm going to discuss today, but (laughs) you know what I mean. But I really do appreciate anyone who listens, and I would love feedback if you have any to give on the show because I'm always looking to develop and grow and um, improve. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, I'd really appreciate a rating and or a review of the of this show because it's a good way to help new people discover it. Um, word of mouth is also really good. Obviously, if you like this, this show, it would mean a lot if you th- have other people in your life that you think would also be interested in the liberal soul. Maybe they have it hidden in themselves. So yeah, you can find this on all main podcasting apps. I have a Facebook group the liberal soul that you can find and join. I post new episodes there as well. Additionally, I have an email, the liberal soul 87 at gmail.com. You can send me an email there. If you have any things you're interested in or uh, any complaints or disagreements or criticisms or agreements, all of it is fine. As well as uh, I do have a Twitter at liberal soul 87. So before I get into it, I do of course have to tell a joke And apropos of this episode, I found a Greek myth, specifically Prometheus joke, which will either be funny to you now because you know the Prometheus story or will hopefully be funny to you after (laughs) I (laughs) relay the Prometheus story or maybe never funny because it's a bad pun. But here we go. The joke is, why would Prometheus make a good mailman? Because it's a job with a lot of D- Livering. <laughs> yes, we'll get to that in a moment. So, Prometheus. Just interesting to note at the start that Prometheus is a name in Greek that translates to something roughly like the English foresight or forethought. So, even just the name itself is paying deep homage to the notion of being able to see into the future, not in an oracular sense, but in a common sense sense, or in a even an ethical sense, to determine what you should do now so that you can have a better tomorrow. And I think that's a huge component of this story. 
because as the myth goes, and I, I'm not reading off of any website or anything, um, I, I just kind of refreshed myself on Wikipedia today on the Prometheus story, but the bare bones of it, like any good myth, are what matter. And it, Prometheus was a titan in the Greek mythology. And the titans were, they were either the like cousins of or in some way related to the Olympians. So the Olympians are the gods that we know from Greece, like the main Olympian in this story is Zeus, like all others, but um, Hera, his his wife, and then Apollo and Athena and uh, Ares, the god of war, and Hermes, the messenger god, and Poseidon, the god of the ocean, and several others that I can't remember off the top of my head. Oh, and another Olympian important to the story is Hephaestus or Hephaestus. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it, but he is the god of the... God of fire, maybe, or God of forging. I think he's the God of forging. He's important, you know, just a little later. And in the great battle between the Olympians and the Titans, I believe it's called the Titanochomy, or it's a tough word, Titomachy. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that word either. But anyway, there's a huge war between the Olympians and the Titans, and the Olympians won. And so most of the Titans were, I think, either buried or put in some sort of imprisonment. Atlas was <laughs> tasked to put the world on his back, which is um, a great story in and itself, because Atlas was kind of the strongest titan. But Prometheus was a titan that actually fought on the side of the Olympians in, the, in this great battle. And so because the Olympians were successful and Prometheus fought with Zeus, Prometheus was in great favor of Zeus post-battle. And so Zeus basically gave Prometheus full range of the kind of world to do whatever he wanted because he was in his good favor for being an ally during the war. And Prometheus in Greek myth is actually the figure that created humans. So this is what's really fun about learning about the creation stories of other cultures, even though Greek myth is only subtly a different culture than our own because so many of our stories and even root words are based on it. In the Greek story, it was Prometheus that created humans out of clay. And so in that culture, Prometheus was the father of humans in a way that we might, in a, in a Judeo-Christian culture, would consider Yahweh the creator of humans. And so, of course, humans were a, a great joy to Prometheus. They were his children, so to speak, and he was their father, and he got great delight out of seeing them go about their affairs in the world as a good father will to their children. And eventually, there's some details hazy here. I can't remember the exact reason. Either they didn't have fire or they had fire and Zeus took it away. The point being, at one point in this story, humans did not have fire and Zeus didn't want them to have it. And Prometheus went to ask Zeus, hey, Zeus, can we give humans fire? Because they don't have it and they need it. They're cold and they're in the dark and they're lonely and they could really use it. And Zeus kind of scoffed at this idea and Zeus said something like, oh, what are they going to do with fire? Those stupid humans, they're just going to either burn their houses down or they'll <laughs> burn each other's houses down more likely or they'll just burn themselves and they're just these weak pathetic non-entities in my mind Zeus's mind and so no they're not gonna have any goddamn fire 
But Prometheus saw his creation and he saw their struggles. And he knew that even though probably Zeus was right about a lot of them, there were some who would use fire for warmth and comfort and illumination and exploration and community. And so what Prometheus did is he stole into Hephaestus's forge on Mount Olympus, I believe, maybe a different mountain, but I think it's Mount Olympus. And he stole the fire from Hephaestus's forge and brought it back down to earth and gave it to humans. So Prometheus is the character in Greek myth that stole the fire of the gods and gave it to human beings. So he's this transit, this transitional creature between, obviously in the story, it's God and human, but these myths are such deep metaphors. Uh, he's the transitional character between knowledge and ignorance, between the world more broadly versus the provincial more exclusively. The difference between the inclusive and the exclusive, the horizon giving or the stagnant. So human beings now had fire. This is another version of the kind of uh, knowledge of good and evil, Garden of Eden or the paradise lost. Knowledge comes at a price. Uh, fire comes at a price. And so obviously humans were a little bit more destructive now with fire as well as their ability to be more exploratory which I think is a deep lesson on lots of stories, but you can't have the ability to go look into the dark crevasses of the void without the risk uh, that fire brings. And yet, given all that, Prometheus still believed in the right of human beings to have fire, even though they might not always wield it perfectly, as well as the belief that some of them would wield it in a way that was amazing. And in a way that um, brought growth and beauty to the world. And so when Zeus found out that Prometheus stole the fire of the gods and gave it to humans, he punished Prometheus by chaining him to the Caucasus Mountains, I believe. And every day, a vulture, in some versions of the story, it's a vulture. In other versions of the story, it's an eagle, because that's apparently the form that Zeus himself took, uh, would come down and rip open Prometheus's torso and eat out his liver. So now, if you didn't know before, you get the delivering joke. <laughs> and because Prometheus was a titan, he was immortal. So every day it would grow back and he would become whole again. And then the eagle or vulture would come back. And so one of the great elements of this story is how Prometheus never became bitter about this. He never regretted his decision to give fire to humans because he knew that it was the right thing to do, that believing in humanity, even given all of their <laughs> shortcomings and hangups, they could do great things with the flame, was um, worth it. And so he never regretted it and he never became embittered, even though he, you know, lived through some of the worst punishments that a organism or a sentient being could live through. This vulture or eagle eating his liver every day. And then the kind of end of the story, as far as the myth goes, which I, I really enjoy, is that Hercules is actually the character in mythology that came and saved 
Prometheus. So eventually Hercules in his travails came across Prometheus still tied to the mountains and released him from his bondage because Hercules was even stronger than Zeus. And only recently have I thought a little bit about the narrative beauty of of having it be Hercules that come and saves Prometheus because Prometheus is saved by a human even though Hercules is a demigod and he is um, he becomes immortal also in the stories at the time he's just a human being he's immortal not immortal but a mortal so Prometheus is saved by a human being the exact creature that he gave his fire to or gave the fire of the gods to and there's just a beautiful narrative symmetry there in that the older generation, let's say Prometheus, gives the flame to human beings and then is punished for that act and then yet saved eventually by a human being who also benefited quite greatly by having fire, given the Hydra story, because I'm pretty sure Hercules is able to defeat the Hydra by cutting off the heads and then burning the stump before it can grow back which he couldn't do without fire, which is what Prometheus gave to humans. So in the myth itself, it's quite beautifully circular or full circle, not circular, but full circle in that Prometheus is eventually vindicated. You could think metaphorically vindicated by Hercules, released by Hercules, metaphorically vindicated in the fact that um, there are human beings like Hercules, who, (laughs) pun intended, can give a Herculean effort into helping the world and metaphorically it made me think a little bit about great people in history who have sacrificed some part of themselves that have become vindicated later a more historical easy example is someone like galileo who you know was persecuted pretty heavily by the catholic church for his you know outrageous heliocentric solar system theories but time vindicates And probably a better, or at least a more modern example that I think fits this bill is uh, Alan Turing, the guy who was essentially the person who invented the computer, as we know it. He was a British computer scientist slash mathematician scientist who helped the British government crack Nazi code. So if you've ever seen the movie The Imitation Game with Benedict Cumberbatch, that's about Alan Turing. And in computer science, there's this thing called the Turing test named after a hypothesis Turing said that if you couldn't tell the difference in a communication between a human being and a computer, it might as well be conscious. I'm not exactly saying that (laughs) correct, but it's the gist of it is right. Alan Turing was gay. And so he was not allowed to be basically obviously take credit for any of this stuff publicly. And he was hounded. And I think he was... um, threatened with arrest throughout a lot of his life and he died relatively early in kind of certainly social squalor if not financial squalor and was kind of not celebrated in his own time for a very dogmatic reason which is that at the time in the United Kingdom and England they didn't accept homosexuality and so Turing was otherized in a way that is reminiscent of Zeus and the gods otherizing, let's say, human beings and and the people who would stick up for them, like Prometheus. 
And yet today, Alan Turing has been sadly, posthumously, but still better than not vindicated. He's been pardoned by the Queen, which is a completely different thing because I think monarchies are fucking stupid and obnoxiously pompous in a way that we don't need that symbolism anymore. But I still think it's nice that it happened, I suppose. So maybe I'm of two minds of that. But Alan Turing is recognized. The broader point and the more important one is that Alan Turing is now someone who's recognized internationally as A, the guy who invented the computer, but B, a gay man who did so much for humanity and was so, and was pilloried for a stupid, unethical reason and not allowed to bask in the glow of helping humanity, which is what you would want for someone like that. I mean, I know that it's a little bit apples to oranges, but we have nothing but glowing things to say for someone like Edward Jenner or Jonas Salk, the uh, inventors of the smallpox and polio vaccines, respectively. Although, of course, they probably met up with their own disagreements in their eras. But I really enjoyed the... um, narrative full circleness of it being Hercules that rescues Prometheus because it's a human being who has been ennobled and emancipated by Prometheus's actions. And there's something beautiful in that kind of recurring resurrection of past greatness in your culture or your learning or your world that you can bring back who deserves a better fate in the way that both Galileo and Turing, amongst many other examples, those are just the two that came to mind, deserved a better fate. They didn't necessarily get it in their time, but we can honor them now. And I think that that's a really beautiful narrative arc. So that's kind of the story of Prometheus in a structural sense. There's details I don't quite know. But the point of this story, I was thinking a little bit over the last couple days that Prometheus is kind of the first or the original liberal soul. He's a character in myth that desired to have himself and his creation. I mean, it's a little muddy because it's a cre- he created humans, but metaphorically, he's wanting himself and other people to be able to explore the world, to be able to see it to be able to understand it, to be able to go into the deep recesses of the void that so scared Pascal and said, no, we have fire, we are not afraid. And that's kind of the motif I conceive of as the liberal soul, is in the spirit of Prometheus, looking to give myself and others fire to go meet fully armed the um, dark recesses of the void. And I have been super blessed in my life to have had so many real Prometheans. And this is something I want to kind of, I don't want to popularize, but I want to make a distinction. I want to be able to use the word Promethean for someone who inspires me rather than hero. Not because I think hero is necessarily a bad word, but I do want to make a conscious distinction in the definitions between those two words is that 
you know that expression, you should never meet your heroes, they'll always let you down. And I think that there's truth in that, because I think what lets you down is that the fact that you, it's easy for a person to mentally and psychologically build up a hero, someone who you think really is amazing in the world, and then you realize, oh, they have a ton of personality flaws. <laughs> Maybe they're extremely unethical. Maybe they treat people poorly. I'll give you an example in my own life. I mean, I could give you several, but I have always been a fan of the acting of Kevin Spacey. I think Kevin Spacey was an incredible actor. I was extremely disheartened and disappointed to hear about all of the stories that come out about him, about his unethical behavior to um, other people and potentially minors. Like, that's just terrible. So I'm left in this kind of limbo of deciding what to think about Kevin Spacey. And, you know, I've settled mostly on being able to separate the actor in the the characters in the movies that he's portrayed from his own personal life. I mean, that's probably a different podcast. So I don't want to get into that too much of that now. But basically, if I was a person who had heroes and if Kevin Spacey was a hero, I'd be pretty devastated. I think that's a good example of someone who would devastate you, who would let you down if they were your hero because of their personal life. And that's an extreme example. You can have much more just kind of like musicians who you really like, and then you find out that they're super obnoxious in real life, or there's just bad stories about them where they're really degrading and egotistical and that kind of thing. And then you can feel like, oh, what? It's basically like, (laughs) beware your hero worship. It's really worship. I think there's a connotation between the word hero and the word worship that I'm not saying is necessary in the definition of the word hero, but I want to make a distinction between a hero versus a Promethean. To me, a Promethean is a person who, even if they have a slightly sordid personal life, and I mean, I'm bracketing off like truly heinous people or truly unethical people. Most people who are disagreeable or have skeletons in their closet aren't necessarily moral monsters. They're just kind of maybe untakeable at times or have bad manners, let's say, at the very least. And I want to call even some of these people Prometheans, not because they're my heroes, or I want to worship them, or I think that everything they did was wonderful, but because through some form of their work or their presence in the world, they gave me a flame. They at some point gave me fire to broaden my own horizons, to grow, to develop, to discover more about the world and myself. And I have had many, many, many Prometheans in my life that have in one way or another made me who I am now and have helped me develop a path of even developing further, let's say. Part of what I wanted to personalize this a bit in a kind of impromptu even, because this is the, I'll tell you this, this is the first episode of The Liberal Soul where I don't really have a source material. I've kind of just winged it. (laughs) It might not be obvious or even knowable in other solo episodes I've done, but I have kind of like read a book and taken notes on it. Uh, This one is all Luke Mason. But I wanted to share five people who have been major Prometheans in my life. Five people who have given me fire in one way or another and do my best to explain how that has happened and how they were able to do that. And they certainly aren't the only five. I have many, 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 many more than five Prometheans, but I was thinking all day today of like, okay, if I wanted to narrow it down to five, 
who would be the ones I would say in a podcast. And so I'm going to go through, not deeply, because every person on this list could deserve their own podcast. And in fact, I have actually done podcasts on these people on both the liberal soul and really true fiction. But I'm going to go through them chronologically from existed most long ago to most now. The first person I want to throw out there into the universe as a major, I guess, top five Promethean in my life is the figure in history of Socrates. And most people know that Socrates was an ancient Greek philosopher, but specifically the reason why I vitiate to him so strongly as a Promethean is that the Oracle of Delphi, which was, I think, a city in ancient Greece, the Oracle of Delphi said Socrates was the wisest man in Greece, or maybe Athens, but given that it was a city-state, that would have still been a major thing to say. So Socrates is the wisest. Well, Socrates goes on a mission. Why? He doesn't understand because he doesn't feel like he's very wise at all. And through all of his dialogues, he discovers that the reason the oracle has said this about them is that Socrates, at least to himself, appears to be the only person that he comes across that understands that he doesn't understand anything, that knows that he doesn't know anything, that most of the people that that he comes across have very strong convictions around what is the nature of justice, what is the nature of love, what is the nature of beauty, what is the nature of wisdom, and through all of his prying and questions, which you can say are disingenuous, and maybe that's fine, because maybe Socrates himself was a little bit disingenuous in his dialogues, but he was still trying to get at a deeper appreciation about the world, which I can definitely relate to in that every now and again, I come across a new insight that even if I didn't think it would come, it's still a rush and I love it. I mean, in a sense, Socrates was kind of already aware of the Dunning-Kruger effect. The more knowledge you get, the less confident you get in your convictions of your knowledge because you know how many ways you could be wrong. You know how how much there is to know, whereas people who know less um, are more convinced of their and more certain of their convictions because they don't have any real reason to contradict them because they haven't discovered alternative viewpoints to their own. So probably that's one of the psychological things Socrates was discovering. But really, the point why he's a Promethean to me in this essence is because he exemplifies or at least encourages something that I would call cosmic humility, that our ego is so small in the face of the cosmos and all there is to know in all of the sciences and all of the humanities mathematics, the things that you can know in culture, you could spend your whole life learning and you wouldn't even have scratched the surface of everything there is to know. So the best attitude, the reason why the Oracle of Delphi called Socrates the wisest man is because he's the one that knew that he didn't know anything. And that very knowledge is the hunger and thirst that keeps you asking questions, that keeps you wanting to learn more. It's the kind of like bedrock of further learning and further knowledge, which is something that is so precious to me that is exemplified in Socrates' presence in the world. And by the by, I might note that the Socratic method is the harbinger of the scientific method, which is asking questions, 
learning a little bit, refining your question, asking it again, developing a different hypothesis. Oh, we've taken on new information. We have a new variable to consider. How does this compare to the beginning? Just this kind of dialectical, and I mean that in the best sense of the term, the dialectical exchange as you accrue more knowledge and new information. The best version of the scientific method is the descendant of the Socratic method, which appropriately enough came from Socrates. And then the last reason why I consider Socrates a Promethean is the example of his death, because Socrates was put to death for the crime of blasphemy, for corrupting the youth, and for blaspheming the gods of Athens. And in one of the greatest works in the history of philosophy, certainly one of the most beautiful, if you ever get a chance, read the Apology, which is the Socratic dialogue or the Platonic di or the dialogue Plato wrote down of Socrates giving his defense to the citizens of Athens who have just who have him on trial for basically corrupting the young through his conversations with them. Philosophy is mostly interesting. And educational. It's not always beautiful, but I find the Apology by Plato a beautiful text in philosophy. So if you ever get an opportunity, you should read that one. But Socrates dies for philosophy. He has a chance to be exiled. He has a chance to run away, and he doesn't take it. He abides by the laws of Athens, even to his own death, rather than capitulate on the principles that have guided his life. People called him foolish, people called him stubborn, people called him an idiot, and yet he understood the fact that if he surrendered on those principles now, he would not have the kind of presence that he does. One of the reasons I consider Socrates a Promethean is that he took the punishment as given, just like Prometheus did. Now, in a sense... You could say there's a difference because Socrates could have run or and Prometheus couldn't. The point of the story, I think, is that both Socrates and Prometheus didn't deserve their punishment for enlightening humanity, but they took it anyway, and they didn't get bitter. Not to their death for Prometheus, but for Socrates' death and for a very long time in torture, Prometheus were not bitter and took the punishment. And that's something... I don't know. It's it's beyond admirable to me. In a way you might think of being so committed to truth and to the betterment of other people, even at the expense of the authority figures or the Zeuses or the Athenian rulers at the time. Because obviously, power appreciates status quo, and Prometheus and Socrates were anything but status quo. So that is um, my first Promethean. The second one I want to mention is the great American transcendentalist writer Ralph Waldo Emerson. Emerson, I think, was born in either the late 18th or early 19th century in Massachusetts. So he's an American writer in the kind of like first generation of people who were, I'd say the second generation of people who were born in the United States after it was a country. And so it was still a very young country that was grappling with its identity, let's say. And Emerson wrote so many beautiful essays on being a person of presence in the world that didn't need to depend on anyone else for your meaning. So I'm actually going to read one of my all-time favorite paragraphs in the history of uh, 
literature, even though it's not exactly literature with Emerson because he wrote nonfiction, but it's very literary. And I actually have done a entire episode on this podcast on Emerson and self-reliance, which this quote is from. So in the essay Self-Reliance, Emerson is talking all about not needing other people, how to be like a, a true nonconformist. Emerson is arguably the first American nonconformist to articulate it in a really like thoroughgoing manner. And so here's a paragraph, my favorite, from the essay Self-Reliance, Emerson. There's a time in every man's education when he arrives at the conviction that envy is ignorance, that imitation is suicide, that he must take himself for better or for worse as his portion, that though the wide universe is full of good, no kernel of nourishing corn can come to him, but through his toil bestowed on that plot of ground which is given for him to till. The power which resides in him is new in nature, and none but he knows what that is that he can do, nor does he know until he has tried it. And so just that observation, that beautifully literary observation on the necessity at some point, I mean, obviously it's unfortunately gendered language, but it definitely holds true for people, men and women and everyone, that Envy is ignorance, imitation is suicide, and no grain of nourishing corn but will come to you but through the ground that you till. And in the last, you know, two or three years of my life, I can tell you that creating your own podcasts or writing your own songs are as nourishing as it gets existentially. And Emerson's writings are so formative for me because I read Emerson mostly in my early 20s. He was so formative around developing a sense of self that wasn't... (laughs) in a modern sense, wasn't based on social media, let's say, or some sort of house of cards of what I thought other people thought of me. I mean, that was obviously around before social media, but what I thought of me, what I wanted out of me, what I believed in myself. Every cliche you've ever heard about self-improvement or identity or self-care even, Every cliche in that realm that you've heard is made uncliche and thorough and deep and thunderingly personal in the essays of Ralph Waldo Emerson. I couldn't um, recommend his writings more to a growing person, either in age or in aptitude. And another reason that I love Emerson is that he's kind of one of the progenitors to me of what I've called highest common denominator, if you go all the way back to episode one. There are a couple lines that he's written that I wrote down. I put my friends in touch with their own reason through electric shocks. I stand here for humanity, and though I would make it kind, I would make it true. Choosing the value of truth and reason over fake pity or insincere sympathy or pandering or a kind of like lie. I think that there's an element of friendship where if you allow your friend's emotions to dictate their common sense, you're kind of lying to them. You're kind of letting them get outside of what they know that they might want to behave in the world if they were at their best versions of themselves. And that doesn't mean as a friend, you don't have compassion for your friend, or you listen to their problems, or you care about them, or you support them, or you understand their emotions. I think those are all important. But that's not the end of the story. And Emerson writes about friendship in a way that I really 
feel connected to, which is that you actually have to, you have to treat your friend as the best version of themselves for them to become the best version of themselves. And he even has a line, if you want to have friends, you must be a friend. And part of his conception of friendship, which I share, is part of deeply respecting your friend is treating them as an adult, as someone who can handle the rough electric shocks that you give them that put them in touch with their own reason. Not all the time, but when it's needed. And having the intuition to know when that is the case. It's not necessarily benign friendship to allow a friend to feel sorry for themselves, to engage in self-pity, to engage in some sense of unrealistic or unactual victimization, let's say. The world's a hard place, and so we need friends, sometimes hard friends, to help us be strong. And all of that is baked into a deep sincerity that Emerson portrays in his writings, not to mention, tangentially, his beautiful meditations on nature and getting back to nature, which is hilarious because he was writing in you know the 1830s and the 1840s when we would assume that all there was was nature. But, you know, <laughs> there's a hilarious line by Emerson where he writes, in um, despair of the encroaching technology, he writes, humans have gained the carriage at the expense of being able to use their own feet. So I wonder what he would think about the entire, you know, encyclopedia plus everything else being in your pocket. I wonder what his observation would be there. (laughs) So yes, Ralph Waldo Emerson, a beautiful Promethean in my life. So that's going to move on to number three. And this is a person who wrote only recently after Emerson, like a decade. Well, actually, kind of simultaneously, but I think he wrote a little bit longer, which is why I put him after Emerson. Anyone who's listened to Really True Fiction slash Knows Me knows that this is one of my favorite authors because of how deeply I feel the pull of storytelling in literature, so much so that I started an entire other podcast on that. One of the ones I wanted to bring up here is the figure in history of Charles Dickens, and Charles Dickens being a major Promethean in my life. And I was thinking this about a little bit. It's a little bit harder maybe with a artist because it's like, well, what did an artist do that gave me fire to go explore the world more? I mean, in one sense, it's easy to see how you can be inspired by artists. Artists inspire. I think it's a little harder to like pinpoint exactly what they're inspiring because a lot of artists' work is interpretive. So it's not a, it's not maybe as... Socrates and Emerson being more or less philosophers, you can kind of pinpoint a little, in my opinion, you can pinpoint a little bit more easily what they're doing for you. But with artists, it's a little harder to pinpoint it. So I was thinking about this today. What did Dickens do for our world that I find so Promethean for a podcast like The Liberal Soul? And it's something like this. Charles Dickens married three major elements of what I'm calling the liberal soul in a symbiotic life. And so what did it do? Dickens married art, his writing and his prose, with social insight, 
his observations about the working class conditions and factory and impoverished people's conditions and orphans and the lower case of society, their plight, he was able to dramatize that in a way that made their stories more known to the powerful in a way, and even just like whatever the equivalent of the middle class, middle class was. So he, he was a kind of like advocate of um, poor people, for lack of a better term, the dispossessed. So he married art, social insight, and a, and a kind of social activism, although not exactly, and thunderous insights on the human condition. So he was an artist. He has some of the greatest prose I've ever read, maybe the greatest prose of all time. And part of that is because he had to, um, he got paid by the uh, word. So he was incentivized to write longer rather than shorter. With most writers, that's a liability. But with Dickens, it's a fucking asset. He can write something that should only take 12 words in 75 words and make it beautiful. Um, So yeah, he was an artist. He was a socially conscious person that had care for people who were in less fortunate situations than him, which is something I talked a lot about actually in, I think it was, I think it was episode seven of this podcast. Karl Popper's example was Dickens talking about a person who cared about individual people who were struggling rather than like what group they were a part of or what class they were a part of to change people's hearts and minds on those people. On, on the people struggling, and his existential awareness. So he was an artist, he was a social advocate, and he was an existentialist. All three of those things in one person, I think, is quite rare. Someone who can make beautiful art that makes you care about the social and political situation that you're in, as well as understand the fact that given the creatures we are, there's going to be so much pain and suffering And because of that pain and suffering, we can have beauty as well as observation and insight. And we can choose to live in such a way that we don't consciously add to that pain and suffering in ourselves and others. And we can hopefully develop systems that don't subconsciously add to that pain and suffering of others. And so to augment that point, there's a couple different passages that I want to read out of Dickens that are both on the existential side, but also show the beauty of his prose. I will go to bat forever on Dickens being one of the greatest prose writers of all time, although I don't think it's that controversial. So the first passage of Dickens I'm going to read is from the novel David Copperfield, which is a semi-autobiography of Dickens, (laughs) which I guess was named after the... uh, magician, as my friend Alex likes to say. And in my opinion, David Copperfield is his greatest novel. And it's actually an episode that my cousin David and I did for our other podcast, Really True Fiction. I believe it's episode 27. So I would recommend listening to that episode because it's a great book. But here is an example of Dickens' prose, an existential insight that is Promethean to me in the novel David Copperfield, and it's David, the character, talking about his one true love that he discovers at the end of the book, Miss Agnes Dickens. She was so true. She was so beautiful. She was so good. I owed her so much gratitude. She was so dear to me that I could find no utterance for what I felt. I tried to bless her. I tried to thank her. Tried to tell her, as I had often done in letters, what an influence she had upon me. 
but all my efforts were in vain. My love and joy were dumb. With her own sweet tranquility, she calmed my agitation, led me back to the time of our parting, spoke to me of Emily, whom she had visited in secret many times, spoke to me tenderly of Dora's grave. With the unerring instinct of her noble heart, she touched the chords of my memory so softly and harmoniously that not one jarred within me. I could listen to the sorrowful, distant music and desire to shrink from nothing it awoke. How could I, when, blended with it all, was her dear self, the better angel of my life? So that combination of imagery in a chords of memory, harmoniously not jarring within me, the distant music that I could not shrink from because it was her dear self, the better angel of my life, that being the way he expresses the fact that he's found the woman in his life that he really loves and really loves him in the softest and most gentle way, is such beautiful prose to exemplify such a beautiful notion about the human condition. And Dickens is full of that. It's a good reminder from a Socratic point of view, because every time I get a little high on my own um, uh, belief that I can articulate or express an idea really well, I read some Dickens and I was like, oh, I cannot. <laughs> here is here is someone who can. And I think Dickens is a great um, example of what I mean by Promethean versus hero, because Dickens didn't have the most pure or clean personal life. He had a mistress. He wasn't in love with his wife, I think, some of the time. And he wasn't always nice to everybody that he came across. So if you met him and you were in his era and lived around him and you knew him, you might think he was a bit of an asshole, actually. And yet not many people have written so much and so much that has galvanized progress politically and hearts and minds socially than him in a way that Prometheus doesn't need to be perfect. He just needs to give you fire. And Dickens definitely had has done that for us. And so even though I think the point is totally made and I'm risking belaboring it and boring you, I do have to read a section from A Christmas Carol because it is so beautiful and exemplifying what I'm saying. And what's the point of saying something if it isn't worth saying twice, right? So here is an excerpt from The Christmas Carol. This is Ebenezer Scrooge's nephew, Fred, replying to some humbuggery on the part of Scrooge around Christmas. Dickens. Nephew, returned the uncle sternly, keep Christmas in your own way and let me keep it in mine. Keep it, repeated Scrooge's nephew, but you don't keep it. Let me leave it alone then, said Scrooge. Much good it may do you. Much good it has ever done you. There are many things from which I might have derived good, by which I have not profited, I dare say, returned the nephew. Christmas among the rest. But I am sure I have always thought of Christmas time when it has come around, apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, if anything belonging to it can be apart from that, as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. The only time I know of in the long calendar of the year where men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good and will do me good, and I say, God bless it. 
And that is just another further beautiful example of the prose and the haunting, the haunting phrases that Dickens uses, not just fellow passengers to the grave, but fellow people I can respond to at Christmas time. And that whole passage is defending the notion of the spirit of Christmas, again, in a rigorous sense. So those three things are the Promethean in him, a world-class, totally fame-deserving artist who blows my mind aesthetically, blows my mind socially slash empathetically in his advocacy of the lower classes and the poor in England and the, and the dispossessed, which can translate to our time as well as his insights into the existential nature of what it is to be a human being. So that is my third one on this list. Uh, The fourth one I want to bring up is a much more recent one, and he actually only died about a decade ago, and that is the figure of Christopher Hitchens. Because Christopher Hitchens, uh, the first note I made is he is a very disagreeable gentleman. Uh, in that old um, uh, line, a gentleman is someone who's only ever rude on purpose, (laughs) Uh, which is just a way of saying you don't want to do anything accidentally, subconsciously, or rub off on other people in a way that you don't intend. And Hitchens certainly never did. He was quite aware of everything about him that was off-putting to other people. But he knew literature and politics and science and history. He had the whole breadth of knowledge to bring to bear in all of his debates. And I watched, there was about a three-year period where I watched a Christopher Hitchens debate or video every single day. He was so formative to me in my early 20s. Again, this is often when things are quite formative to young people in their late teens, early 20s, because I had grown up in a very liberal Christian, you know, in the linguistic sense of liberal, but Christian nonetheless household, believing all the metaphysics and the social improprieties preached from the pulpit. And so I had grown up with the notion that I took Christianity seriously. And unlike a lot of professors or apologists in popular culture or in journalistic culture, I thought Christopher Hitchens took Christianity seriously. He took its claims seriously, not just Christianity, obviously, but religion in general. He took all of their claims seriously and combated them on their own terms. So when a lot of people would say things like, well, your people don't really believe this, it's a metaphor, he would say, no, people really do believe this. And it's not correct because of these factual reasons why that particular belief isn't correct. Factually, or even if it were true, would we want to believe it ethically? He explored every single forking garden path of an implication of the logic of Christianity in a way that I had never come across an adult do it. He really treated religion as a worthy and venerable opponent, something to study, something to understand, something to not merely be able to make cheap points at. In God is Not Great, he talks about so much history, so many things in the chronicles of the religion I'd be raised in that I didn't even know about. And he did it all. So he had this, he had a ton of content substance, which he also delivered with so much charm and grace. He always used the titles. Uh, He would say pastor, or he would say the bishop or the rabbi, and he was never derogatory about that. He was never sarcastic or cynical about 
using those terms that religious people use in their own communities. He was quite respectful of it. He always used the term professor or doctor uh, when he was talking to someone, but he always went after the ideas. He was a master debater. Ha! He was uh, whip smart on the classics. He had a, a mind-blowing vocabulary. And I just was transfixed to the YouTube watching his debates because of his ability to be both stylistically. He was aesthetic. His style was aesthetic and his content was venerable and quite impressive. He worked hard to not make cheap shots at the expense of his debate partners. He wasn't perfect at it because human beings aren't perfect, hence the need for Promethean versus Hero. But he gave me fire in the concept of Again, it's not what you think that matters, it's how you think that matters. It's not the propositions that you think are important, it's how you come about it. In boring philosophical terms, it's not ontology, it's epistemology. It's not metaphysics, it's science and the scientific process and how you even go about discovering new things. In another boring scientific sense, he reminded me that teleology is not important. Letting go of the final cause, of letting go of utopia, letting go of living life in such a way that it's all about the end of it, at how you can do as opposed to the living of it, every day being its own kind of like artistic way of trying to develop a better sense of yourself and others in the world that can be more intelligent. If there was ever an exemplar of highest common denominator living, not just thinking, but living, it's Christopher Hitchens. And I know he was a polarizing character, but for people of my generation and definitely people who grew up in the church, but were not quite on board with all of the uh, empiricism and logic, he was uh, Promethean for me. And he was probably, even though he's obviously much younger than the previous ones I've mentioned, he was the first one that made me think like this. Because he came to me in my early 20s through a medium like YouTube where I could really understand him and see his face and hear his voice, I was thunderstruck in that someone could be that smart and that caring at the same time. He was always gracious to children. He was always gracious to people not as intelligent as him if they were being polite. He was always kind to non-combatants, and he left nothing on the table with adversaries in the intellectual realm. And that's my aspiration. <laughs> and so that's why Christopher Hitchens is uh, another of my top five Prometheans. So before I reveal my last one, I do want to give a few honorable mentions that are similar to some of the ones that I've written and certainly not <laughs> exhaustive, but Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, John Stuart Mill, Thomas Paine, and Jesus Christ are all Prometheans of mine in one form or another. I just think that Emerson was a little bit better at all of the things that I care about in Nietzsche. I never know how to say Nietzsche or Nietzsche. It's like that in the Han Solo movie when Lando at the end calls him Han, or maybe not at the end, he's like Han, and uh, Han Solo says it's Han, but that's all right. A little nod and a wink to the ambiguity in how to pronounce Han Solo slash Han Solo's name. I feel the same way about Nietzsche or Nietzsche. So I use them interchangeably. Apologies. John Stuart Mill 
as you know, if you listen to this podcast, to me is the actual OG liberal, not the mythical one. And Thomas Paine was arguably the most philosophical of the American founding fathers, and he never was a founding father. He didn't, I don't think he signed the Declaration of Independence. He just motivated the country. He was a pamphleteer, but also a political philosopher. He wrote The Rights of Man, Common Sense, The Age of Reason, and he was a farouche but ardent advocate for freedom. And so he's someone I've always really appreciated. And I think Jesus was one of the most interesting moral philosophers that ever lived. Slash, similar to what people say about Peter Singer, he was Jesus was maybe more moral entrepreneur than moral philosopher. Even though he talked about his moral philosophy, he also kind of tried to live it, at least as far as the stories go, which is why I think there's so much to learn about Christianity once you let go of the metaphysics and the kind of like weird relationship it has with the human body. But there are many other Prometheans. But maybe one of the elephants in the room is, of all of the names I've said so far, of my Prometheans, you'll notice there aren't any women. And that's one of the saddest parts of history, I think, is that there aren't as many influential women in history in this way, in this regard, because, of course, they were barred from participation in higher learning, education, public life, Obviously, by the time Emerson and Dickens were writing, there were female writers who are very influential. And I imagine that people like Jane Austen and the Bronte sisters, um, among many others, George Eliot, uh, who I've also talked about on this podcast, are hugely important and Promethean in their own rights. What I totally mean to say is that there's nothing gendered about Prometheus in my mind. It just so happens to be that most of the people who've made a major influence in my moral and ethical and intellectual life have been men, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. It's just that unfortunately there has been a inequality in that in history. A rather fun, given the context exception to that rule, is Mary Shelley Wollstonecraft, who wrote the book Frankenstein. So she is the author that created Frankenstein in in popular culture, but a lesser known, what a very nerdy, (laughs) not not a very nerdy, what the um, actually guy will tell you at the party is that actually Frankenstein is not the monster. It's the name of the doctor that invented the monster. Well, that's true. But what the actually, actually guy should tell you is that the title of it is Frankenstein or a modern Prometheus. The full title is Frankenstein or a Modern Prometheus. Thus, Mary Shelley Wollstonecraft is paying homage to the Promethean story in creating a new being. That is fun because her husband, who only died at age 29, I I read up on Wikipedia, the British poet Percy Bysshe Shelley wrote the dramatic and romantic poetry Prometheus Unbound, which was a a kind of extension of the early Greek tragedy playwright Aeschylus, I think his name is pronounced, who wrote Prometheus Bound. So there were a number of Promethean stories in popular culture. Obviously, given a Greek myth, it's not a new story, but it's also not a new, it's not an untalked about story either in popular culture. I mean, (laughs) we have a movie made nine years ago called Prometheus, which I won't waste any of our time talking about. 
I only bring all of that up as historical interest because of Percy Bysshe Shelley's Prometheus Unbound being Prometheus escaping after Hercules rescues him and going to continue his desire to help humanity and become a very noble figure. All of this is to say that there are a regrettable and tragic and, in a historical sense, unfixable reality that there just aren't as many women on my Promethean list as there could have been and probably should have been in the great history of our species, given that women have... (laughs) Words don't do it justice. I I wanted to say women have done so much. That just seems patronizing and obvious. But the last person on my list is my mother, who I will be remembering her 64th birthday on the day after this episode is released, August 30th. It's been six and a half years since she has passed away because my mother was my first Promethean. She was the first person who ever gave me fire. And there's like a hundred little stories I could tell. One of the ones that I relayed after I started Really True Fiction was how I dedicated that podcast in total to my mom because my mom was someone who made me read books. (laughs) The most kind of like tongue-in-cheek way, funny way to put it, is that she told me I was never allowed to watch a movie of a book until I had read the whole book beforehand. The best context of this is when um, the first Lord of the Rings movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, it came out in 2001. So I was 14. The trailer came out, I don't know, it was such a huge, huge movie. So the the first trailer came out like five months before it it was going to be released. And so I watched and I got so excited. But my mom told me, well, you know, you're not going to be allowed to watch that movie unless you've read the book. And I was like, oh, such a big book, but okay, fine. I really want to watch the movie. So I'm going to read the book. And I was like, okay, yeah, well, you know, I could probably read the first book. And she's like, no, Luke, you have to read all three books before you're allowed to watch the first movie. Ugh. So I had to read all three Lord of the Rings books before I was allowed to watch Fellowship of the Ring. And of course, when you're young and a teenager, this is just all bullshit and you're frustrated. And But I'm so grateful because I don't think I would have ever at this point in my life, well, maybe now, but I've only ever read them once and I want to go back to them. But there's so much in those books that they play with your imagination. So that, that story is just to exemplify that my mom was a, basically total hard ass around reading. She insisted I read. She read to us. She read books that were like a little bit hard for us. So I learned more difficult words. I learned how they're pronounced. I learned how to understand and appreciate stories at a very young age, which is coming in quite handy at this stage in my life, considering that two of the three podcasts I'm on are specifically and ostensibly about stories. She had this little jingle that she used with me and my sisters. She had this little mantra that was, get started, work hard, work quickly, don't stop, look for more, be cheerful. And again, at first blush, it's annoying. But eventually it becomes kind of funny when she says it enough because she was always there working with us. And you just do it. You learn to just get started, work hard, work quickly, don't stop, look for more, be cheerful. Uh, Repeat ad infinitum. She also taught me how to be logical. She taught me that you're not going to solve a problem by moaning and bitching and whining about it. 
in the world with other people because you have to go use your reason and your rationality. She had time for emotional pain, but she didn't have time for self-pity or self-indulgence. I was homeschooled, so she taught me math. She taught me English. She taught me science. Whenever we could avoid creationism, it was pretty good. (laughs) She taught me everything about literature. She drove me to countless hockey tournaments. She woke up early to drive me to practice. Both my parents did in the kind of more conventional parenting stuff. They both did it. But without her influence in my life, I would not have the capacity to understand English or literature or geography or history or basically everything that we mean sincerely when we talk about the humanities she gave to me. So ever since I was a young little boy, she didn't let me watch TV when I could be out doing sports or reading a book. She didn't let me play too many video games when I could be doing those things. And of course, when this happened, I was not happy with it. But everything that I can do now, I can trace back to something she implanted in my life. Unlike the four previous people I mentioned, she was a kind of literal Promethean in that she was the direct kind of hand-to-mouth person who gave me the fire of my love of reading, my love of adventure, my love of exploration, my love of caring about other people and loving to see them grow and develop. I mean, it's why I, one of the reasons I love working with children is that I love the idea of being able to pass on to younger people some of the things she gave to me, which really is the true Promethean story, is that the fire of knowledge and love and curiosity and art and pain and sadness is given to younger people in the world because of the beauty of the glow of the flame and the beauty of the exploration. And um, I guess I just say, I love you and I miss you, Mom. And I thank you so much that you were my first Promethean. And I hope that in some small way, I will be a Promethean too. And I hope that in some small way, Maybe somebody listening to this feels the warmth of the Promethean flame themselves, because that's actually all I really care about. So thank you for being a fellow passenger with me on this great adventure of passing the flame. Through 20 episodes so far, I have no intentions of stopping, and I'm really enjoying this. If you are listening to this, There's definitely a part of Prometheus that burns in your heart, too. And pay it forward, because everybody needs the flame. Thank you for listening. You found the liberal soul.